the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen. Good morning. It is Transfiguration Sunday, the apex of the liturgical season we call Epiphany. Since the beginning of January, week after week, we have been moving towards this day. We have been given hints and intimations stories and signs and symbols, including a star, a dove, jars of water turned into wine, all leading us to this moment, literally this mountaintop experience. And now, ostensibly, we've arrived. So where are we? Well, we're on a mountaintop with Jesus and some other interesting characters, yes, but how and why is this story important? And as we know from life, mountaintop experiences, however powerful, aren't places we can stay forever. So what happens after that for them and for us? And why do we read a version of this story this Sunday, year after year after year? You see, in our three-year cycle of scheduled readings called the lectionary, the story of Jesus' transfiguration is assigned to this particular Sunday every year, the Sunday that ends the season we are finishing, which is also the Sunday just before we begin the season of Lent. So here we are, trying to find meaning in a story that will most likely never make sense from any kind of empirical or analytical perspective. But a story I want to suggest this morning may, in fact, give us some strength for the journey and a glimmer of hope in an otherwise dark and uncertain time. This is a hard time for many of us. In the Episcopal Church, we continue to struggle with the Archbishop of Canterbury's decision to uninvite the spouses of lesbian and gay bishops to the global gathering of Anglican bishops, Lambeth 2020. And Tuesday, many of us watched as the special conference of the United Methodist Church voted to pass the traditional plan, doubling down on the denomination's policies prohibiting same-sex marriage and calling homosexuality incompatible with Scripture and is designed to expedite trial and deposition of all LGBTQI clergy. So I begin this morning with a big ask. Stay with me. Please stay with me here. Suspend your understandable scrutiny and maybe even a bit of disgust these days with the institution we call the church. Let us not confuse, conflate, or confound Jesus' message of radical love, inclusivity, and equality with the all-too-human responses of limitation, scarcity, ignorance, fear, and misunderstanding. Let's start with the gospel lesson we just heard from Luke and have a quick recap. We are near the end of Jesus' ministry, and he has taken Peter and James and John up a mountain. Cue dramatic climbing music. And while they are up there, something remarkable, or we might say unbelievable, happens to Jesus. Everything about him changes. His face, his clothes, everything about him appears to be changed 
as a shining bright light that seems to take over the scene. And then things get even more crazy when he is joined by Moses and Elijah. Much has been written about why the storyteller picked these two historic figures. The most popular theory is that Moses, who must have lived some 15th centuries before, represented the Jewish law. And Elijah, also from centuries past, represented the Jewish prophets. So it is a powerful image in the story to those who heard it first. That's God's voice from heaven directing Peter and James and John to now listen to this guy. Listen to Jesus. In other words, the storyteller is underscoring the importance of this new paradigm, this new path, this new invitation to follow Jesus. Luke is writing to emphasize that Jesus is the completion of the law and the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Hebrew scriptures. All in all, a pretty mind-blowing trip up the mountain by anyone's standards. We read this story in all three synoptic gospels, each version equally impressive, elaborate and rich in imagery and language, and yet there is something different in the version we just heard from Luke. In Luke's version, there is a phrase not included in Matthew or Mark's versions of the story. It is a phrase with a particular word I have never noticed before, perhaps because I didn't need to notice it until today. In Matthew, verse 3 of the same story, we read, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And in Mark, same story, verse 4, we read, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And then there is the parallel verse in Luke we heard today. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah, and they were speaking of his departure. Did you hear it? This morning, this morning's version is unique because the storyteller has included what Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about. They were speaking of Jesus' departure. In Greek, that word, departure, is translated to exodus. I never noticed that before. But as we think about it, we shouldn't be so surprised that both Moses and Elijah are having discussions about Jesus' departure, Jesus' exodus. It is, after all, what the three of them have very much in common. Each of them have experienced an exodus. They know what exodus looks like and feels like. Each of them has been called upon to leave something, a people, a place, a way of being, an oppressive system or regime, an exodus moving them from the known to the unknown in order to seek liberation and justice and the peace of a God who wants nothing less. Moses and Elijah knew all of that. And in Jesus, they see it again. His exodus, his ultimate departure is just about to begin. Jesus' own exodus will be complex and complicated once he comes off that mountain and he starts making his way to Jerusalem for the last time. 
He is about to begin an exodus from all that he has known today into a world he has never known before and will ultimately lead him to and then past the cross. An exodus leading him from freedom to capture, from torture to death, from the tomb to ascension and ultimately to liberation and life eternal. And all of this takes a new turn today as the message of transfiguration, of change, change of, well, everything, what is seen and felt and maybe even understood by those following Jesus, faithful disciples who never completely understood that leaving that mountaintop would be the beginning of the end of their walk with their Rebbe, with their friend, with their teacher, with their Messiah. This version of today's story reminds us that Jesus' journey to the cross is perhaps the ultimate Exodus story for those of us who follow this path of love. And this feels like a significant point and a deep moment inviting grace into the lives of all of us who call the church our home. So where is the hope and the grace and the promise that all of this we call church, every building, every doctrine, every creed, every dogma we have pledged our allegiance to, that all that is aligned with the transfiguration story. I am wondering this morning if we can still claim this story. And as how we live out the message of God's love, is it still shining and challenging and changing all that is broken around us? To answer that, I have to move to the foot of the cross for just a moment. To me, Jesus' cross is about release and freedom. Release from all that binds the heart and the body and the mind and the soul and freedom from oppression of all kinds. I do not subscribe to the dominant Christian theory of penal substitutionary atonement theology, a belief that Jesus had to die as punishment because of our original sinful nature. I am utterly unconvinced in arguments about the necessity of God punishing rather than forgiving rather than holding us spiritually hostage, rather than offering love and forgiveness at every turn, and subscribing to anything that does not underscore the primary nature of God as the ultimate energy and essence of love and compassion in the world. And if our starting point is not original sin, but original blessing, then today, may be a reminder that the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop is nothing short of the invitation to face into all that needs liberation and change and reimagining. Three final comments. First, to all in the Methodist church who are hurting, we love you and we stand with you in solidarity. I pray we can be a place and a people of solace and compassion and deep listening. My hope is that we will live into the challenge of refraining from giving advice and instead show up and try to discern 
and this may be the only time you ever hear me say this phrase, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Really and truly, how best can we be friends? Can we be brothers and sisters in Christ? Second, moving closer to home, regarding our ongoing frustration with the Anglican communions unwilling to invite all to the table for Lambeth 2020, I want to read a portion of a letter that was written two days ago by the Episcopal bishops of New York, one of whom is my friend, the Right Reverend Mary Glasspool, and is the only current married lesbian bishop in the United States. Their letter to their diocese says this. So much of our dismay over the Archbishop's decision is that we are so blessed by the inclusion of members of the LGBT community in the full sacramental life of this diocese, including ordination and access to marriage for same-sex couples. We are graced by the lives and witness of the countless gay and lesbian priests, deacons, and laypersons who have enhanced and magnified our common life by the depth of their faith, by their courage, and by their self-offering of their lives to the service of God and God's children. We will be taking to Lambeth the lives and stories of all the LGBTQ people in our diocese. We will be taking the hard histories and the holy graces of people who have asked only to receive from their church the dignity and love which they have received from their God. We will bear witness to the struggle and the triumph, and we will give voice at Lambeth to the voiceless, many who will not be there. We will carry to Lambeth the spirit raised this year on the 50th anniversary of Stonewall in this, our diocese, and the celebration of World Pride Week. We, the three bishops of your diocese, will go to Lambeth so that you will be at Lambeth. That summarizes who I want us to be. Not people who have it all figured out, but people willing to live into what the transfiguration may be all about, a time of change, a time of reordering and an exodus from old ways, and the courage to live and move forward and further into the heart of God. And finally, a word to just us, closer to home, here at Trinity. Sometimes things happen that remind me of God's grace in spite of all my own personal efforts. And when you hear the offertory this morning, that is what I want you to remember as you leave and go out into the world later today. We didn't plan this music for today. Well, of course, we planned it. But Nate had no way of knowing what I was going to stand here and say and know that the message that you will hear in the song that they, we will sing, could actually, once again, have taken place, the place of this entire sermon. So I want to end with just a few of the lyrics, changing only the words slightly to include us all, and ask that you take them into your heart, into the place that God made and blessed as holy and beautiful and good long before any of us ever walked this earth. 
into that place that God is ready to transform into freedom and release. We are not strangers to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. We've learned to be ashamed of all our scars. Run away, they say. No one will love you as you are. But we won't let them break us down to dust. We know that there's a place for us, for we are glorious. And when the sharpest words want to cut us down, we're going to send a flood, going to drown them out. We are brave. We are bruised. We are who we are meant to be. This is us. May it be so, my dear friend.